Wherever cancer is, Hancock Health will fight. In any part of you and in all corners of East Central Indiana. From Indianapolis to Greenfield to Knightstown to Rushville. From hospital rooms to family rooms, we fight. With technology and medicine. With care backed by the wisdom of Mayo Clinic. For you, for your family, and for your future in Rush County. We fight cancer here. HancockHealth.org slash cancer. The Hammer and Nigel Show. Hello, my name is Nigel. Tony Kennett is filling in for Jason Hammer. We'll go straight to the DriveHubler.com hotline and bring on Brett Sadler, uh, former Navy captain, senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Brent, uh, I saw you on TV the other day. I believe it's. I think it was Fox Business, but I just caught the tail end of your interview. You were talking about Russia and China and the aggression towards the United States, and you said something really. And I didn't get to see the entire interview, but what you ended the interview with really raised my eyebrows. You said, "Keep an eye on Alaska." What did that mean? Yeah. So the bottom line is. Everything's been real quiet. There's no pressers coming from the White House, DOD, not even North Northern Command, which is responsible for Alaska, Alaskan airspace, or Indo-PACOM, where some of the destroyers that trailed the Chinese-Russian combined naval group uh, came from. And it's been kind of quiet. But those guys, are the Chinese and the Russians, are still there up in Alaskan waters. And they'll probably be there for a few more days. But we wouldn't know that by watching the news or from our government. What are they doing? So what we do know from kind of piecing things together from Chinese uh, media sources and Russian media sources is they were – they were practicing anti-submarine warfare, hunting down and you know tracking together a hostile submarine and then using live fire, actual ordnance, to sink a target submarine. And they did that. Um, where they did that exactly, it would be nice if we had that detail told to us. But what we get from the Russians and the Chinese is they were doing it starting in the Sea of Japan. They transited six days up into the Bering Sea and waters off Alaska. Now, and now. They, Yes. I, I kind of want to chime in just because there's kind of a, an idea here that I don't think, you know, the average, uh, perhaps a Democrat on the Hill might say, well, you know, a lot of countries conduct anti-submarine warfare training. Uh, when you take China and Russia out of the equation, how many other nations on Earth have navies with substantial submarine components? There's probably about a dozen, and I would say of that dozen, probably only about six are are competent for the ability to actually go hunt down another submarine, uh, especially a nuclear submarine. So it's it's not a big club, and really the United States, the Japanese, uh, the Brits really are some of the top end maybe the french to a degree are all at the top end the apex hunters in that in that arena so basically you have you know nato plus you know japan our number yeah. one ally over there in the pacific uh, that is basically the what you might suggest is the target of this kind of training exercise by chinese and russian mm-hmm. navies that's it. Um, the other part I'd add is anti-submarine warfare, that's the varsity sport of naval warfare. This is not right. easy. It's very complex. And the fact you're doing it with another country, in this case, the Chinese and Russian doing it together, that's a whole nother degree of complexity they add, they're adding and perfecting. Wow. So uh, just to recap, Russian and uh, Russia and China conducting drills close to Alaska 
with submarines involved, firing shots, sinking targets, um, basically doing these drills. I had this right, and I've seen nothing about this on, on mainstream media. That is correct. It, it would be really helpful for our Department of Defense to at least clarify what has happened and where it has happened and where this Chinese-Russian combined naval force is located. Um, that, that's that's missing. And the fact that it hasn't gotten more energy or more of a response wow. is uh, troubling. Uh, we're on with Brett Sadler from the Heritage Foundation talking a little bit about uh, this interesting series of maneuvers that the Chinese and Russian navies are, are practicing out in the Pacific off the coast of Alaska, or excuse me, off the coast of Alaska, but also the South China Sea, uh, as well as some other U.S. operations uh, in, in the South Pacific have been getting a little bit of special attention. Uh, I, I've seen reports that, you know, you have U.S. naval ships that are basically being cut off in the sea by Chinese warships, yeah. and they're getting more uh, abrasive and affrontal in their their interactions with the U.S. Navy. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's a symptom of a Navy and a Chinese Communist regime that doesn't fear the United States. Uh, and so you're seeing more and more of this. I mean, during the Shangri-La dialogue where you had ministers of defense and our own secretary of defense, literally that was bookended by like some very dangerous and unprofessional near collisions by the Chinese against our naval vessels. Uh, South China Sea right now. And what makes this event up off Alaska so provocative is, A, you've got Russia waging an illegal war of aggression in Ukraine as one of the partners, and you have the Chinese actually using water cannons and interfering with and attacking Philippine government resupply operations to their garrisons in their own islands. So, and also the Chinese are driving lots of aircraft and ships around Taiwan in a month-long pressure campaign. For that reason, the context makes this very provocative. Uh, not only that, but it seems like they're testing us. I mean, you have the Chinese spy balloon uh, incident a couple of months ago where this balloon from China was allowed to hover over military installations here in the United States, and then uh, it was shot down somewhere over the East Coast, and everybody was high-fiving and celebrating, and I'm like, <laughs> what? what are, are you kidding me? What? Can you take yeah. us Back to that moment uh, over the whenever that happened happened sometime yeah. earlier this summer. Just kind of take us back as exactly what happened and what China was able to glean uh, from us allowing a Chinese spy balloon to hover over the United States for days. Yeah, that was I think it was back in May. May, you know, literally, uh, you know, that was still the talk of the town when when I was in Singapore for Shangri La dialogue, and that experience, that recent experience, is what's animating me right now on this issue up in the Alaskan waters. If you recall, back at the time of the spy balloon, the administration was trying to ignore it or hoping it would go away because there was a there was a they were in the effort in the midst of an effort to get. Secretary of State and the National Security Council advisor to Beijing to try to open new dialogue with the Chinese. And so they were trying to suppress that or at least ignore it. But, but the balloon flew over Montana and the Dakotas, and folks there were watching it and live streaming it, and it was unavoidable by that point. That was like a week into it. So they almost got away with it. I think the same things that are put here. Um, there are efforts, there's working groups, try, some of it's leaking out, that the administration's working some kind of new modus operandi with the Chinese, the details of which are scant, but 
maybe they're trying to protect ongoing negotiations in this new new type of relationship. So that's kind of the thing that, that I'm that I'm interested in because a lot of the people uh, that discuss this issue say, well, you know, China's just you know kind of exerting their their force and their pressure in the, in the Pacific, and they're just trying to make sure that we know that they're there. Uh, but you know, Michael Cunningham over at the Heritage Foundation paints kind of a different picture on the inside of China, and there's a lot of mm-hmm. chaos and pressure. They're kind of tearing themselves apart from the inside, and there's a lot of concern that that kind of a thing can lead to as uh, as as um, the Z regime starts to get a little unstable, they can make erratic military moves. And, and at least from, from my very limited uh, perspective over here, it looks like we're kind of seeing the symptoms of some erratic military choices and movements uh, that are definitely a symptom of, of China's ills on the inside. No, absolutely. The Chinese Communist Party controls everything. Uh, I mean, the market, the people's freedoms, and the military. The military is a tool of the party. So if things start to fray, Xi Jinping at the top top of that party apparatus is going to feel compelled to do something that's going to rally the team, his communist team, together and pick in a fight with the United States, one that he thinks he can control. Maybe it's a crisis can actually bolster his credentials. And so that's a very real danger, especially as we lead into Taiwan elections coming in January. That that was my next question, piggybacking on Tony's question about their military. Is an invasion of Taiwan imminent? Um, not in the next like number of months. I don't think we're that. That's that's the world we're in right now. And I think the Chinese military and the, and the political leadership don't think they quite got all the data they need, and and their confidence is not near a hundred percent. So what I'm most worried about is as they try to refine their battle plans. The biggest question mark is what is this administration willing to accept? How far back are our red lines? And how are our allies in the region going to respond? So my biggest fear is we're going to see a violent uh, provocation, uh, like running into a ship, like actual colliding and maybe injuring or killing uh, people Mm -hmm, or shooting down of an air. Something like that that tests our resolve, but in a small scalable way that they think that the Chinese communist regime in Beijing thinks they can control and get a lot of insights to refine their war plans. Uh, 2027, the tail end of this decade, still is where the odds kind of peak, where their advantages peak and then start to drop off. So it's a a closing window by the 2030 time frame. We've been talking about the, 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 the Russia and China aggression towards the United States and how China is a real threat to the United States. Something else that's a threat that you know about pretty well is DEI in the military. How how much of a threat is diversity, equity, inclusion, that, that way of thinking, that ideology to the United States military? Well, I think the first thing that everyone needs to acknowledge and to, to really kind of get to grips with is at its core, diversity, equity, and it's that equity part is really the tell. Right. And inclusion is actually, it's actually a cover for Marxist ideology. Mm. And I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of folks and commentators and researchers that have also weighed into this. But that's the first thing is to, is to call it out what it is. It is, it's not intended at its core 
to improve warfighting capacity or capability, unit cohesion uh, at all. It actually distracts and it divides uh, every place that it's actually been implemented. This is a insidious. It's not. It does not have democ- American democracy at its heart or its concern, top of its concerns. It doesn't have our defense. Also, it's focused in on a Marxist roadmap for sowing dissension and causing people to look and compete against or fight each other. As you know, more of a socialist agenda takes takes the uh, top of levers of power in this country. Wow. So, very real threat. It's insidious. You can't get into discussions or debates about meanings of words uh, without understanding that you're in a fight with ideologues that really the ends will never change for them. And it's about power uh, and nothing less. And DEI is a vehicle that seems to be working right now for them. So, uh, Brandon, I just want to bring this around in the last minute that we have here. I have a couple of former uh, squad mates who've talked about kind of the younger officer cadre of the day Mm. don't really know anymore how to just be that calm officer that kind of keeps that unit cohesion high by being relaxed. This DEI is kind of whipping everyone up into a frenzy. And with the kind of pressure from China and Russia right now, I mean, do you really think that that's effective in keeping our troops well maintained, knowing, I mean, goodness, a lot of enlisted guys have got to have some concerns yeah. about this stuff? Well, I mean, it's not a it's not a white, black, age. It's not a racial thing at all. I think all Americans, when they actually are, are being, you know, subjected to this DEI kind of rhetoric, realize and they can feel the divisiveness of it. Yes. That is breaking unit cohesion. And when you do that, your combat effectiveness goes down. Simple as that. And the key thing about it is is uh, folks being can easily get bought in to think that they're doing things that are moralistic and idealistically good. And that's the, the insidiousness of this, this Marxist ideology, of, and it's really the equity piece. Yeah. So it sounds great, but when you start executing it, it's horrible. Brent, this has been uh, fascinating and terrifying all at the same time. Um, where, <laughs> where can people find you if they have questions and they want to know more? Well, the easiest thing is to go to heritage.org and uh, look me up there in the list of experts and get in touch with me that way. I'm on LinkedIn, of course. Easy just to find me there. And, and Twitter, or I guess now X. X. And, right on. Brent. Yeah, it's Brent D. Sadler. Hey, Brent, thanks a lot, and uh, we'd love to have you back for an update soon. Absolutely. You guys have a good day. It's the Hammer and Nigel Show.